11 is where we're going to be this morning. And, and as I was reading and studying this, uh, this passage that we're about to cover, some theologians call the interlude. So basically, the pause or the, the break in between two acts. And I was thinking about this and, and considering this, and um, yesterday we went to watch Georgia beat Florida. Anyone watch that game? Yeah, it was, it was a good game, right? Why are you wearing blue today, though? Oh, sorry. You're beautiful, Matt. I did not mean to slam you in front of everyone. So no, we were watching that, and um, two, two things were going through my mind. Um, one, today is Carolee, my youngest, third birthday. So, um, yeah, it's a pretty big deal. She's not in here, but she's awesome. Uh, she's going to kill us early. Uh, she is definitely the fourth kid. Any babies in here? The last kid of your family? Ra- raise your hand. Yes, you guys. Good gracious, you guys. Uh, I can't say anything. My wife and I are both babies, so we know how it goes. But so simultaneously, I'm thinking about my three-year-old that's having a birthday. We took her to Cabbage Patch, which is the like that is the occult, literally. That is the worst place. Don't go. Took her there, and then last night I'm hanging out with my brother and his family, and they've got a. I should know this because I'm a good uncle, but a three-month-old. Bree's not paying attention, but how old is Reese? Good job. Three-month-old. We'll just say three-month because we're both great aunts and uncles. Four months. I was close. <clears throat> so here was what was going through my mind because I'm kind of in this interlude. I'm holding this four-month-old going, man, like I, I know that this wasn't that long ago for me because it, for us, we had babies in 2014, 15, and 16. Right, So every year of those years, we had a newborn. Uh, it was crazy around our house. But just fast forward three years later, I'm holding a newborn going, man, I cannot believe I was here. So I can look back and think about all the mistakes that I made as a parent with a newborn. I can think about all the joys we had, the hard times we had, just marveling at how we even survived for the last three years. So if I've kind of ghosted you guys over the last three years, I'm sorry. It's not me. It's the kids. Blame the kids. They're evil. Yes. Right? So same thing, but for some of us, uh, raise your hand if you're a freshman in college. All right, so you're not, Tozer, you're not a freshman in college, bro. (laughs) Uh, so anyways, like high school was not that far removed for some of us in this room. So we can look back and go, okay, like how was I in high school? Some of the things I did were dumb. Some of you guys have just graduated college. Some of you guys are three, four years into marriage. Um, some of you guys are empty nesters. Some of you are walking into retirement. So we're all kind of in this interlude season at some level where we're not too far removed from either really, really good season or really, really rough season. And so what we're about to see with Joshua. He's in this interlude now where he's looking back and making some pretty big observations about all that God has done and led them through, which is an encouragement for me, and it should be an encouragement for you as we get into this text. But here's the main spoiler alert. In his interlude season, in looking back, his focus was never on him, but it's solely on what God did in him and through him. And that's the lenses I want us to see this morning. So Joshua 11, we're going to read verse 23. Just one verse. Is that not crazy? We're going to read a whole lot more, but to get us started, we're going to read verse 23. Joshua 11, verse 23. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments. And the land had rest from war. 
and the land had rest from war. So he's entering into this interlude season of the war is now finished. So we're going to spend this morning looking at the summaries of his battles and see what God had taught him through these seasons. So let's pray. And Father, we're so grateful that we have your word this morning that we can study, that we can see how Joshua reacted when he came out of this really difficult season of battles and wars. And although, yes, there were many victories for Joshua, there was also many heartaches and there's many lessons. And so, Father, we just pray that you would speak to us this morning, that we could see the heart of Joshua through your lenses and, and through the lenses of the gospel. It's your name that we pray. Amen. So the land had rested for more. Now this is pretty crazy because all that we've covered since we've started the series has been Joshua coming into the promised land, coming into Canaan, going after all these battles. And, and we saw the first week in Joshua 1 that Joshua was actually born into slavery in Egypt. He experienced the exodus, Pharaoh, let my people go, the ten plagues, that whole deal. Came into Mount Sinai with Moses, was Moses' right-hand man. Joshua was the spy that went in to look at the promised land with the other 11. Came back, 10 said, we can't go. Two said, we should, Joshua and Caleb. But Moses listened to the 10, the fear mongers that were afraid and not trusting God in what he asked them to do. So they had to wander for 40 years. So Joshua stayed faithful to Moses, stayed faithful to the Israelites, and stayed with them for the 40 years. Moses now died. Joshua takes over, marches the Israelites across the Jordan River into the Promised Land. And when he comes in, he comes in right in the middle. So basically, there's three three wars happening, or three stages. Comes in to Jericho, takes care of the south, takes care of the north. Here they are. All the war's over. The battle is done. It's finished. So Joshua writes that their rest now. There's no more war. They can finally breathe. And I don't know if like you guys are like me, but in these moments of rest, when the adrenaline is happening and things are going on, we're good, we can fight, we're running for it. But the moment everything stops, that's when stuff becomes real for us. I joke around with my wife, but it's not a joke. When our kids get hurt, I'm like super dad. I'm in there. I take care of everything. But the moment like kids are okay, everything, I'm going to pass out. Like it just hits me like a ton of bricks. I'm just out. So if you, if you break an arm today, I'm going to take care of you and get your arm. But as soon as you get in like the car to go to the hospital, someone come find me because I'm going to be passed out. Get some sea salt and we're ready to go. Sea salt? Nope. Don't try to cook me. That's weird. Some oregano, some sea salt. Let's just fix him up while he's gone. Um, so that's what's happening here in this text. This Joshua's going to make three massive summary statements. One about the southern battles, one about the northern battle, battles, and then one just about the battles in general. And he drops three massive implications of the truths of God's character and nature in these. So for a lot of us, if you've been here tracking through the series, some of this is going to be a review But if Joshua includes it in his summaries, I think it's best for us to include these in our sermons. So flip back with me real quick to ten or chapter ten, verse forty. Chapter ten, verse forty. This is where we're going to see the southern campaign summary. So where they came in, defeated Jericho, they went to the south, and this is his summary of those battles. Joshua ten, we're going to pick it up in verse forty. So Joshua struck the whole land, the hill country and the Negev, which just basically means the south, and the lowland and the slopes and all the kings. 
He left none remaining and devoted to destruction all that breathed, just as the Lord commanded of Lord God of Israel commanded. And Joshua struck from them Kadesh Barina as far as Gaza and the country of Goshen as far as Gibeon. Verse 42. And Joshua captured all the kings in their land at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned all of, and all of Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. So here's this, here's this, this, this clue that Joshua drops in here. The Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. So when Joshua is at the end of the battle, when things start to slow down, here's the massive revelation that he sees, that the God of Israel fought for Israel, that this victory wasn't our victory, this was ultimately God's victories, that if we would not have stayed obedient, if we would have not followed God into this battle, we would not have won, we would have fallen apart, and we see this all over the place. Joshua 1, be strong and courageous, I've got this, just follow me. We see this with the walls of Jericho falling down. We see this at the battle of Ai. Uh, We see this with hailstorms coming down, killing more people than the Israelites killed. We see this with the sun standing still so that they can continue to fight and battle. So when he could stop and look back, and this was the moment where he could puff his chest and say, look at all I accomplished. Look at all that I have done. He clearly says that if God was not fighting for us, we would have lost all of it. Now here's the implications for us, because Isaiah 14, 13 says it this way. The Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up his zeal. He cries out, he shouts aloud, he shows himself mighty against his foes. So we see God in the sky, and we're getting close to Christmas. We think God is like a Santa Claus kind of figure. But do we really see, consider, ponder, or pray to a warrior king? When we think about who God is in nature and his character, do we think about him as a warrior, as someone that fights, that he's going after everything, and he's attacking it, he's putting it to death? Or do we think more like uh, the fat guy you walk into a Chinese restaurant and rub his belly and go on? I mean, seriously, what comes to our mind when we think about God? Because what, I, what Joshua is saying, what Isaiah is affirming, what the entire Bible affirms, is that yes, God is love, but in his love, he is a warrior. He's going to fight. He's getting after it. And that if we don't submit to that, we're going to be recipient of that fighting. If we don't follow into, if we don't submit into where he's going, because we see this clearly in the commander of the Lord's army, when Joshua walks up to him in Joshua 5 and says, hey, listen, are you for us or are you for our enemies? And what does he say? Neither. I'm for God. I'm not for you and I'm not against them. I'm for my name, my renown, my glory. So you fall into where I'm going or else it's going to end poorly for you. So when you think about that kind of a God, do we think that his victory is our victory? And we could have zero victory apart from that. And I think a lot of people, I'm not trying to judge heart of men here, but you listen to any award shows or any kind of thing like that, any sports broadcast, what's gonna, the first thing some people are going to say is, I just want to thank my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ for giving me this victory, for giving me this award, for giving me this talent. And I hope that's true. I genuinely hope that that's what people actually believe. But is that the small things? Like, yeah, maybe we could see that for the big things, but, but the small victories that we see, do we honestly think that, man, that's from the Lord, that is his victory, that's not ours? Or do we in our 
self-conceited American mind go, oh no, I did that, I accomplished that. That was my victory. So we sit in this in-between season looking back at where God has brought us. Whose victory was that? Who won those battles for us? How much credit are we taking for something we probably shouldn't take credit for at all? So here's, I think, where Joshua is going with this, and there's two implications here that I think a lot of us will wrestle with. Uh, the first one, that the victory is God's. But we, we want that credit. We want that recognition. The victory is actually ours. So we might throw a token like, oh, yeah, God blessed me with this. Oh, it's so great. But at the end of the day, we, we want that credit. We want that recognition. This is our victory. I mean, just think about it. The last time someone complimented you about something, the last time you accomplished something major, was it, was it lip services? Was there a deep yearning in your soul? I could never have accomplished this. Let it have been God doing it for me. We get real confident. We get uh, overly confident in our gifts, skills, and abilities. But the other thing that we get kind of messed up on is that God fought for Israel, not for these men, but for the glory of Israel because God is his glory. So God's motivation, his primary focus is not the Israelites, it was his glory. Church, hear me. God's primary focus is not you in this room, it's his glory. And the more, and I've hit this almost every week I've been up here, because the faster we understand this, the faster we walk into this, the better it's going to be for all of us. That we are not the target of the affections of God primarily. If we were, then that would make God an idolater, that he was holding us up on this pedestal, which would make him not God. The best thing for God, the best thing for us, the best thing for the universe is God, his glory, his name, and his renown. If anything else gets in the way of that, everything gets wacky. We see this all the way back in Genesis. The original sin happened because of an attack on God's glory. God didn't actually say that. He didn't really mean that. You can do what you want. So the quicker we can see what Joshua saw, that it's God's victory, that God was fighting, if he would not have fought for us, we would not have won, the quicker we give God the glory and the faster we understand what's really at play here. Ephesians 6, you don't have to flip there, but I'm going to read it real quick. Ephesians 6, uh, verse 10 puts it this way. Finally be strong in the Lord and in strength of his might. So if you have any background in church, what I'm about to read is going to make total sense to you that we need to put on the armor of God, that we need to fight because it's up to us, but we skip right over verse 10. Be strong in not yourself, but in the Lord, in the strength of not your might, but his might. So in light of that, in light of the Lord's strength and the Lord's might, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So what are we up against? It's not flesh and blood. It's that voice that Satan is whispering in our ear. This victory was yours, Gabe. This was your doing. Don't share this recognition with anyone else. Only you could have done this. If you wouldn't have done this, no one else could have. It's okay. Pat yourself on the back. It's all about you, big boy. You got it. We believe our own hype. We believe this is our victory. And what happens is we start walking away from the glory of God, not into it. So the first summary points us and pleads with us. This is God's victory because this is God's glory. Don't mess that up. Flip down to chapter 11, verses 12 through 15. 
So the northern or the southern campaign is summarized in that way, but now we flip to the northern campaign in its summary. Joshua 11, we're going to pick it up in verse 12. Joshua 11, verse 12. And all the cities of those kings and all the kings Joshua captured and struck them with the edge of the sword, devoting them to destruction, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. But none of the cities that stood on mounds did Israel burn, except Hazar alone, but Joshua burned. And all the spoil of these cities and the livestock the people of Israel took for their own plunder. But every person they struck with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them, and they did not leave any who breathed. Verse 15 is where we're going to camp out. Just as the Lord commanded Moses his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So Joshua drops this hint in for us that what's happening here, what he wants us to see through the northern campaign, through the southern campaign, through all these victories that Joshua had, is it was only accomplished by the glory and the name and the renown of God fighting for them and Joshua's enduring obedience. Enduring obedience. And I'm, I'm careful here to use those two words together, lest we kind of fall away from the massive implications, the hermeneutics of what's happening here. Because this wasn't a one-time obedience here. This was a span over seven years that Joshua did everything that the Lord commanded, over and over and over and over and over again. His obedience had to endure all the difficult things, all the hard things. We see one example when the soldiers came back from Ai when there was some disobedience happening and 36 soldiers died. Do you not think that God or Joshua just wanted to throw it in the towel? Like Moses didn't equip me for this. God didn't tell me that I was going to lose soldiers. I'm, I'm done here. But it was this enduring obedience after seven years Seven years of hard work, seven years of grueling battle, seven years of losing friends, seven years of having to manage millions of people, seven years of really, really hard work. I just don't think most of us have the framework for that kind of obedience that stretches out that long. Enduring obedience is what Joshua is laying out for us. That we must have obedience that endures but I don't even think we get the obedience part right, let alone endurance. So I have this phrase around my house because the kids love to help and they really just kind of screw everything up. It's, it's helper's help, right? Just a simple phrase, helper's help. So if, if I'm doing something, one of the kids going to come help get involved and kind of serve in this capacity, I'll say, okay, you can come help. But remember, and at this point, the older should say, help yourself. Okay, and here's what I mean by that. 99% of the time when the kids want to come help, they actually have no interest in helping what I'm trying to accomplish. I mean, I can't tell you the times that I'm working out in the garage, building some furniture or building a bench or something. I'm working over here, and I turn around, and I see a claw hammer coming down on the bench that I just created. So what are you doing? Oh, sorry, Dad. I'm trying to help. No, helpers help. They do what I've asked you to do. I've never asked you to pick up the call end of a hammer and destroy the bench that I just built. I just want to cut you right now. Like, that's the thought that's going through my head, right? 
But just lest you think that I'm perfect, which I know I look like it, um, this happened just a couple weeks ago. My wife threw it in my face, and it took all of my self-control not just to storm out of the house in a hissy fit, right? We were folding towels. Any married people, have you had this fight before? Folding towels. Evidently, I've been doing it wrong for 32 years, brothers. 32 years. I can do a lot of things well. Folding towels, not one of them. So I'm folding towels, and she's like, oh, that's not right. I'm like, who cares? Like, it's going to fit into the spot that it's going. What does it matter? And my wife goes, but helpers help. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you know, you feel the tension, right? Like, everything in my being just want to flip the mattress on top of the roof. But she's right. If I'm going to assist her in doing what she's asking me to do, I've got to do it her way. That if I'm going to be a helper, I've got to help. But if we take that obedience and compare it to the gospel, are we actually doing what God's asking us to do? We're saying, God, I'm here, I'm a Christian, I'm here to serve you. And it's God going, but but what are you doing? Like, helpers help. Are, Are you aligning into where I'm going, what I'm doing, how I've orchestrated things to work? Or do you just want to do it your own way and then tag on, but I'm a Christian? I mean, let's think about it. it it's, it's quite simple what God is asking us to do. Most of us in here know the greatest commandment, right? Love the Lord God with everything you have. Love your neighbor as yourself. Most of us, if we've been in church for any amount of time, know the Great Commission. Go make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I've commanded to you. And remember, I'm with you always and the end of the age. We know these things. But are we actually doing any kind of obedient efforts in that? Are we spinning our wheels, making ourselves feel good about what we're doing and just kind of tagging on Christians? Are we folding towels not the way that God has instructed us to or the way that we're supposed to, but but the job's getting done, so why does it really matter? If you read any of the Old Testament, especially go back to Exodus and Leviticus, um, the rules and the regulations and the way that God makes things work, the instructions that he gives, shows that details really matter to God. The way that we do things really matter. So are we actually being obedient? Here's probably the most common way I see this. Kind of obedience, kind of not. Actually, it's not take place. We, We know the Great Commission and we know the great commandment, but what we would rather do is read books, talk about theology, and do nothing. What we'd rather do is puff up in our own knowledge. I'm reading Christian books, therefore I'm doing Christian things, therefore I'm being obedient. I'm hanging out with Christians, I'm doing life in community, therefore I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. But all the while we know, love your neighbor as yourself. All the while we know go and make disciples. But we can do some Christian things, we can do things that look good from the outside that aren't inherently sinful, and therefore we can pat ourselves in the back going, oh no, I'm good. I'm being obedient to what you want me to do, right? And I'm not saying anything negative about reading good books and talking good theology. But if we're doing that instead of going and make disciples and loving our neighbors ourselves, yes, I'm talking bad about that. So, church, we've got to focus on the obedience part before we ever get to endurance. If there's ever true persecution that would come to the church in America, we know that we'd fall apart. It would just crumble. Because there's nothing in us. There's no endurance. There's no fight. Because we haven't even mastered obedience. But Joshua followed everything that God commanded Moses and Moses commanded him. He was in. 
He was being obedient. He was following after. Just a few quick scriptures on this. James 1.22. But be doers of the word and not just hearers only, deceiving yourselves. 1 Samuel 15.22. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than to sacrifice and listen to the fat of the rams. So our Lord desires obedience, not just sacrifice. Jesus takes this in the New Testament, says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Romans 6, 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as an obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness? So we are being slaves to something. We're being slaves to righteousness and obedience, or slaves to ourself that leads to sin. We have to wrestle with this. Joshua was an obedient man. Followed all what the Lord had asked him to do through Moses and himself. And flip over to chapter 11. We're going to pick it up in verse 16. This is the overall summary here. This is where we'll see the, the overall summary of all the battles take place. And right in the middle, we're going to have to deal with uh, some pretty, a pretty weighty subject that Joshua throws in. Joshua 11, we're going to pick it up in verse 16. So Joshua took all the land, the hill country, and all the Negev, and the land of Goshen, and the lowland of the Arabah, and the hill country of Israel, and its lowland, from Mount Halak, which raises to Seir, as far as Baal-God in the valley of Lebanon below Mount Hermon. And he captured all the kings and struck them and put them to death. Joshua made, a war, Joshua made war a long time, which again, most scholars would say seven years, with all those kings. Verse 19. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except for the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. Now, real quick, the Gibeonites, those are the ones that came into, deceived the Israelites, saying, look, we're from a far country away. They put a stomach acid from animals into their wineskins to make them look old. They took the worst oxen and the worst donkeys over. They made their clothes look real raggedy. They took moldy bread and said, we're from far away. Have mercy on us, when the reality is they were only 25 miles away. They were within a day or two journey, but they made it look this way so that Israel would have mercy on them. And we see that Israel welcomed them into the fold. Those were the only ones that made peace. They took them all into battle. Verse 20. For it was the Lord's doing to harden their heart that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. And so he continues on explaining more and more battles. In verse 23, he says, And the land has rest from war. But verse 20, if, I mean, if we're reading this in a real way and asking real good questions, for is the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle. And they should receive no mercy but be destroyed. They should be devoted to destruction. If you read this passage, if you read chapter 11, Four times that that same phrase is mentioned, devoted to destruction, that the Lord hardened their heart and devoted them to destruction. Now, just cards on the table, this could be multiple sermons to go through this, right? So I'm going to try to do this in the next five minutes. Y'all ready? 
What does it mean that the Lord hardened their heart? What does it mean that the Lord hardened their heart? And we read this, we read about Pharaoh, we jump into Romans 9, we see this phrase come up over and over again, and we understand it. So let me, let me first make this massive claim that we can prove through Scripture before we go any further, right? There's not a single man, woman, child in history Never a single man, woman, and child in history that has longed for salvation has not received it. Okay? So we talk about God hardening heart. That does not mean we cannot create this straw man that men, women, children, they want for salvation. They're crying out to God to save their souls, and God goes, nope, I'm not going to do that. That's not what this passage is implying. If we just read this, just this one verse, without giving it proper hermeneutics, understanding the big picture of what's happening, we're going to think God is some kind of monster in heaven. Now let me be very clear. God can do what he wills. He can do what he wants. That he is great, he is merciful, he's incredible, he can do what he wants. And no one can bring a charge against him. But we see this passage that God hardened their hearts. We have to understand the, the bigger story here. And it all comes down to, is God sovereign or is man responsible? Is God truly sovereign over all of this or is man responsible for all of this? One of my favorite theologians passed away not too long ago, R.C. Sproul, just puts it masterfully. Yes. Yes. Is God sovereign? Yes. Is man responsible? Yes. In other settings, we can dive deeper into that, but we have to understand these two things. Yes, God is sovereign. Yes, man is responsible, but God will never turn away anyone that truly wants salvation. So in light of all of that, what does it mean then that God is hardening their hearts? What does it mean then that God is hardening their hearts? Here's the overarching theme here. It's been over 400 years over 400 years when this was first told to Abraham in Genesis 15, that these, this is going to be your land, you're going to have it, you're going to own it, you're going to possess it. 400 years that God has loved them, that he's been patient towards them, that he's been wooing them to themselves, he's been pleading with them, he's been giving opportunities for them to come submit unto the lordship of Jesus Christ through God. 400 years. So we read this and go, man, how could a loving God just hardened, done, finished, 400 years this has been going on. 400 years that they've been actively making decisions, pushing God away every single step. 400 years. So has God been ultimately patient with these people? Yes. He's been leading them. Did he give them final chances in the days of Israel coming into? Yes, because we have two perfect examples. We have Rahab, right? We saw Rahab and Jericho. The spies come in. Rahab welcomes them in and and uses this phrase. Our hearts melted when we see the things of your God. Our hearts melted. Does that sound like a hardened heart? No, their hearts melted. Spare us. Save us. Save my family. And what happened? Israelites did. Yes, we will take care of them. We will spare them. We fast forward to the Gibeonites I was just talking about. They use the exact same phrase. Our hearts melted when we saw the things that God was doing through you. So even in those last moments, God was still bringing in people for himself. But the other kings, the other lands, they had a different approach. They said, no, this is ours. This is our land. We're going to harden our own hearts. So was there a hardening of hearts? Were they actively choosing against God for 400 years? Yes. But in the end, did God say, your time is out? Yes. 
And we see the same thing with Pharaoh. I mean, if you're not familiar, go check it out. Go read that story. But God comes to Pharaoh through Moses and says, let our people go. You've got to do this. And Pharaoh says, no. I have a, I'm hardening my heart to the things of God. So what does God do? Gives 10 plagues. Gives 10 different times for Pharaoh to go, God is God. I've got to submit to this. I've got to lay down my life to this. This is, this is crazy. But every step of the way through God's patience pursuing, Pharaoh hardens his heart even more, even more, until finally God says, okay, that's enough. That's enough. So did God harden the hearts of these kings and leaders? Yes. But did he pursue and love and try to make efforts for their salvation? Yes. Let me read two quick passages for you. Deuteronomy 9, 4 through 5. Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess the land, whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving out them before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God is driving them out before you. And that he, he may confirm the word the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So we see the situation and go, man, like, but God hardened their heart. Like, they're just innocent people. Like, they, they were just innocent people doing nothing wrong, and God just swooped in and hardened their heart. No, these were explicitly sinful people. We all are. But the sexual immorality that was happening in Canaan would make us blush. Child sacrifices were a normative thing inside the Canaan. So this is not just like innocent people that God just hardened their heart and let's move on. No, for 400 years he tried to restore order. He tried to bring them to himself. But all the while their hearts became more hardened as they practiced all the sexual immorality, all the sinful nature, all the child sacrifices. And so what's happening here is God's saying Deuteronomy, don't think it's your righteousness that's giving you this. It's their sinfulness that's giving you this. It's their wickedness. I'm only going to judge sin for sin. And we see this throughout Scripture. We see this throughout Joshua. Even within his own camp, we see Achan get outed. Why? Because he stole the plunder and he lied from God. So sin will be punished. He is patient. He is loving. He is merciful. But there is an end to that. So flip with me over to Romans 1, if you have your Bible. I just want us to read this. I want you to mark this. I want you to study this after today. Now that you've got all this newfound energy because you had an extra hour of sleep. Or you stayed up an extra hour later last night because you're like me. Romans chapter 1, we're going to pick it up in verse 18. Romans 1, we're going to read 18 through 25. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. 
Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to their lust of their heart, to impurity, for, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So this is not innocent. The Canaanites knew. 400 years they knew. And just like Rahab, just like the Gibeonites, they had the opportunity but their hearts were hardened. God hardened their hearts. Their time ran out. Last scripture I want to read on this, lest we skip over this. 2 Peter 3, 9 and 10. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any would perish, but all would reach repentance. He's patient, not wishing that any would perish. Verse 10. But... The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. Then the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So he's patient. He desires that all men be saved. But there comes a day where it's over. And we see this clearly happening through Canaan. So were they hardening their own hearts through this process? Yes. Did God come in at the end and finally harden their heart? Yes. But does this make God an unloving, unmerciful, unjust God? No. So as we start to wrap up our time together, flip over to chapter 12. I, I want to spend the majority of our time here. I say majority. We're starting to wrap up. Don't worry. But we see these promises, we see these truths as Joshua is looking back in this in-between time, between two massive acts, because we're going to see that not next week, but the next week, Joshua starts to divvy up their inheritance. He starts to divvy up the land that they've now possessed through all these battles. So the battles are over, the inheritance is here, but in this in-between. And the way that this ends, it starts at the end of chapter 10, all through chapter 11 with the summaries, and then he gets to chapter 12. And for me, this has just been a humbling thing as I've been preparing for this, this sermon. The detail that he puts into chapter 12, because this interlude ends in a very peculiar way, but I think it's, if, if we take heed of this, if we do what he's asking us to do, if we model what's happening here, I think God will get all the glory and I think it'll end well for us. So we're going to look at verse 7, and I'm not going to read all of this for you, primarily because there's a lot of names in here, and it might be distracting because I'm going to trip up on all these, but I want us to see um, Joshua 12, 7 through 24. And as you're looking at this, go ahead and start looking at some of the pattern while I'm throwing this out here too. We have to understand that right now, paper is not very scarce for us. Around you, there's note cards that we went and bought so that you could take some notes if you wanted to. If you were out of paper tonight while you're doing homework or you're at home, uh, chances are there's a Dollar General really close to you because we live in the South and there's Dollar Generals everywhere. Um, so you could just run out to Dollar General, spend a dollar, get a couple composition notebooks, come back and be good to go. You can write down all your hopes, thoughts, and dreams, and you could draw pretty pictures and be good, right? But that's not the case for here especially in the Ultimate Testament, paper was scarce. The way that they had to write things down, the steps that it took to get things written down was not as simple as it is here now. So the fact that Joshua went through and detailed 
all of this that we're about to read is a massive implication for us today. Primarily, he wants us to see the historical context of what happened. But I think this is for Joshua's good, too. So let's pick it up in verse 7. And these are the kings of the land whom Joshua and the people of Israel defeated on the west side of the Jordan from Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon to Mount Halak that rises towards Seir. And Joshua gave their land to the tribes of Israel as a possession according to their allotments in the hill country, in the lowland, in the Arabah, in the slopes, in the wilderness, in the Nebeb, in the, the land of the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Verse 9. The king of Jericho won. The king of Ai, which is beside Bethel, won. The king of Jerusalem won. The king of Hebrew won. Or Hebron, excuse me. The king of Jeremoth won. And this trend continues and continues until we get to the end of verse 24. Excuse me, 20, yeah, 24. In all, 31 kings. So what he's doing is he's making a list of all the kings that were defeated under primarily the hand of God through the hands of the soldiers and the Israelites. I mean, it's, he's saying one because he's keeping track, but you could also change that to W-O-N. One. Victory. 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 Church, I, I think we should do that. I think what he's doing here is paramount for our maturation, for our growth. Because here's my, here's my experience, and maybe you can relate with me in this. It's when things are really bad or things are really good that our faith goes out the window, right? It's when things are really, really bad or when things are really, really good. So let's take the bad, that, that, that life is just falling apart, that nothing seems to be working well, and what we're going to start accusing God of, where are you? You're not here. How could you let this happen? Where are you? What's happening here? I thought you loved me. I thought you cared for me. Uh, look at what's happening in front of me. None of this looks like you love me or care for me. But the opposite of that is true, that things are going really, really well. We go, man, I did this, I accomplished this, it's my brains, it's my wit, it's my skill set, it's my abilities, I've done all of this. So what if we just took moments a day? What if we just took some time to be like Joshua and write down the victories that we've seen God win for us over and over and over again? And we put that somewhere that we can see forever and always to remind us of God's faithfulness, God's victories, that all we have to do is endurance, obedience. And then we're set because God is the one that's going before us. He's coming after us. The victories are ultimately his, not ours. If we want to see, remind ourselves of the goodness and the nature of God and his love for us, we should write it down. We should publicize it. We should see it constantly lest we forget it over and over and over again. I mean, it's, it's this phrase that preaching the gospel to ourselves. Almost every counseling session I do, almost every time I'm having to talk to myself, what's actually happened is I'm reminding myself of how good God has been to me and is to me, and it will always be to me, but we lose track of that so often. So yes, is there historical connotations to what he's doing? Yes and amen. But is there more to that? Yes and Amen. Anyone grow up in a super Southern Baptist church that only sang hymns? All right. For all that those churches can be, 
Some of the hymns are so rich. Let me just read you two lines from this hymn. Pardon for sin and a peace that endured, thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide, strength for today, bright hope for tomorrow, blessings all mine with ten thousands beside. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. We'll let Scripture make the same point. Joshua 1, 17 and 18. Or actually pick it up in verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we shall be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. That every good gift is from him. So when we get to these interlude seasons, one of the best things that happens is hindsight. Hindsight is always twenty twenty, right? So when we get to this season, we can look back. Because listen, I know that some of you are walking into a really difficult season. I know some of you are in this difficult season right now. And I know some of you are starting to walk out of a really difficult season. If we don't write down, if we don't journal, if we don't take notes of how faithful God was to us, even in those horrible seasons or in those great seasons, we're going to forget all about it. That Satan is going to whisper in our ear and deceive us to go this way and forget all that God has done for us. So as I'm writing and thinking through these, man, I just became overwhelmed with all the good promise that God has fulfilled in my life. That he birthed me to incredible parents that love the Lord. And they're not even here, so I'm not trying to suck up to them so I can get their lake house sooner. That's just the truth. Right? They're blowing my inheritance going to Colorado. If you're listening to this on podcast, stop traveling. I want money. Right? But that's not, no, the, the reality is that was a good gift from God. That God saved me as a nine-year-old in a really country Baptist church that didn't have great theology, but still used that to save my soul. That God moved my family for property taxes when I was in middle school and allowed me to start going to the same high school as my wife. That God allowed us to, even though I was so stupid and treated her so poorly, that she still loved me and cared for me and we got to get married. That God provided a job, a full-time ministry job, straight out of college when I was and still am an idiot. As much as I bash on my kids, we have the greatest four kids of all time. I mean, they're just incredible that God has given me you guys to shepherd, to lead, and to love, and to walk in community with. I had the best elders that anyone could ever ask for. The lead team that helps lead this church is incredible. That God brought us to Dahlonega for no other reason than his own glory, his name, and his renown. And we get to celebrate in this. But if we don't remember this, what's going to happen? That when I have a bad day, I'm going to curse at the moon and yell at God, how are you? How could you do this to me? No, I've got to write these victories down over and over and over again. But God is good, and God does love me, and God is victorious. He's beating all the battles for me that I don't even know need to be beaten. So do we know that, church? Are we walking in that? Are we being reminded of that constantly? The little victories, the major victories, write them down, and right next to it say, one victory, so that we would never doubt again if God loves us. We would never doubt again if God's providing for us or taking care of us. We can always look and see the victories in front of us.
So Scripture tells us that before we take communion, we need to examine our own hearts. We, we need to read our own mail. We need to say, God, is there any sin in us? Is there something that I need to confess, I need to repent from? So this morning, here's what I'm going to ask. There's some papers around you. You've got your phone. Before you take communion, would you just write down some of the victories that you have had in your life? That there's no other reason those things should have taken place other than the goodness and the gloriousness of God in your life. So that you would know, that you would know that God loves you, that God cares for you, that his victories are yours. That if we're Christians in this room, if you're a believer in this room, communion is for you. If you're not there yet, I'm so grateful that you're here. I just ask that you refrain. But if you're a Christian here, this, this is the most important thing. That nothing else matters. What victories do we have? What hope do we have? What's the body that was broken for us? It was the blood that was spilt for us. We have nothing greater. We have nothing deeper. We need nothing else. Everything else is icing on the cake. But we have Christ taking our place, giving us his righteousness when all we have is filthy rags to hand him back. He gave us everything even though we offered him nothing. So I'm going to pray for us. And after prayer, the band's going to be up, just be picking and playing. Take a few moments just to write so you can see in front of you on paper or on your phone all the ways that God has provided for you, the victories that he's won for you so that you may never doubt again as God for you because we see he is. So let us pray. Father, we are humbled as we read the summaries. We, we start to wrap our minds around all that you did through the Israelites, Father. That you went before them in battle, that you were leading them, that you were taking care of everything. All they had to do was have endurance, enduring obedience. Father, would you forgive us that even though we have scriptures in our hand, even though we're about to take communion, even though we know how much you love us, that we can come worship here and gather here freely to worship and praise you and hear your teaching. Father, we still doubt, we still run, we still murmur, we still complain. Father, would you remind us of all the good gifts you've given us? Would you remind us of all the victories that we have in you? Father, would you remind us that, that none of those are because of us and what we've done and how hard we've worked? Father, because you've put us in this time in history. You've given us the skill sets and the abilities we have. You've given us the work ethic that we have. Father, every good gift is from you, and would we remember that? So, Father, let us be like Joshua that writes down the victories, not so that he can boast, not so that he can look good or he can show that list off to his boys, but, Father, so we can see you. Great is thy faithfulness. You are faithful and just to the end. So before you go partake in communion, the band's going to be playing 
I just want you to write. And it might seem strange or insignificant, but I promise you it's not. I want you to spend a few moments writing down the victories God has given you, writing down the ways that he's provided for you, that he's shepherded you, that he's loved you and taken care of you. And I want that to well up in you faith to lead you to celebration, to rejoicing in the goodness of our God. And then I want us to go take communion and see, taste and see that He is good. And would we put that note card somewhere that we see on a daily basis so that we can see how good our God is. So I'm going to leave us in this state of prayer. Would you consider, ponder, and pray? And then ultimately, would you write the things that God has accomplished for you, the victories that he has given you? And then when you're ready, communion is open, and we can rejoice and celebrate. Great is God's faithfulness. Amen.
So I'll leave us in this moment of prayer. The band's gonna start to play a little bit. And, and when you've asked the Spirit, once you've spent time praying for that temptation, communion is open for all the believers in the room whenever you're ready. And then we'll celebrate, we'll worship the King that has not left us here to figure this out on our own. But the one that knew we couldn't, so sent a Savior for us. So let us sit and consider and ponder where we are being tempted, where we're falling short, and leave that at the foot of the cross.